Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're going to be in verses 21 through 35. 21 through 35. We are wrapping, we're in the last couple of weeks of a series called Recovering the Church. And we're looking primarily through Matthew 16 through 18, looking at some foundational principles, characteristics, and qualities of a healthy group of followers of Jesus. And that's basically what the church is, a group of people trying to follow Jesus in this world. We're trying to be his disciples and learn from him. And just keep in mind, there is not a positive portrait of the disciples in this entire text. And so really, this is exposing our human tendencies and realigning them back with how Jesus envisions us following him. And so we have this week, and then we're going to do next week in a little passage in the book of Acts and talk about the Spirit. But we're almost done with this series. Before we get into this text, I wanted to just set us up to make sure that we properly read and understand this text. When we misunderstand a text, we will misapply the text, and we misapply the text, sometimes it has disastrous consequences. And so, I want to start with, before we jump into a little bit about the nature of parables, because we're going to read a parable. Peter, of course, Peter has something to say to Jesus, and Jesus responds with a very important, very difficult parable about forgiveness. Now, the thing to know about parables is don't overanalyze, don't overliteralize the parables. It's like what we talked about last week with hyperbole. When we look, when we zoom in and we start tearing apart the details, we miss what the text is actually trying to do. And this is important because when you're meeting with people, especially young people who have zero contact with the scriptures and they read texts like this, they're going to have a lot of questions. And so it's important that we help, help them see how do we make sense of and read parables, um, let me show you, they're, they're meant to be read as stories, not legal codes. Think about it that way. They're, to, they're painting pictures of, for us of what the kingdom is like. For example, there's some striking imagery here. So, for example, at the end of the text, you're going to hear where the king tortures someone. And then Jesus says something like, well, my Father in heaven will do the same to you. Is this saying that God is going to torture you? If we're understanding parables correctly... We know not to draw too strong of connections. It's talking about consequences, and we'll get there. But also keep in mind that up front, Jesus says, you have to forgive them 77 times in this parable. Yet in the parable, the king only forgives once. You see what happens when we start pulling apart the parable and looking at all the finer details? We run into some mess. Let's make sure we're reading parables correctly because it'll, it'll have an impact on how we understand and apply it. Parables at a basic level, especially in the, in the ministry of Jesus, parables are simple yet profound illustrations of what it looks like to follow Jesus in this world. They are meant to, as one author says, disrupt us, change the way we perceive things. They're not, look, they're not after giving us instructions, they're reviving our imagination of how the world should be. If you're looking for three points to forgive, 
This is not the text. This is to stir you towards forgiveness, to imagine what the world is like when we live in a forgiving fashion. They're simple yet profound illustrations of how the kingdom of God works. Parables are intended to provoke, investigate, and reveal our hearts. That's what parables are for. So how do we read them like we've talked about, and what are they for? To provoke, interrogate, and reveal our hearts. And so that's important to know moving into this very difficult text up front. So as we read, with that in mind, as we read, listen to your emotions as we walk through this. What angers you? What disrupts you? What makes you go, I don't like that? What's agitating you? What brings you comfort? Listen and follow your emotions as you run through parables because parables are meant to stir our hearts. In fact, Jesus at the end says, this is a heart issue. We good? Let's read this parable. Matthew 18, 21 through 35 comes right after Jesus is talking about dealing with conflict in the church. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered all that he had sold or had to be sold to repay the debt, his wife and children included. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who, grabbed him, who, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt when the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged, and they went and, sold to, and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until... He should pay it all back, everything he owed. And this is how, or in this way, the Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. This is God's Word. Amen? If I were to ask you to share with me what you perceive to be the most controversial teachings of Jesus or about following Jesus in this world, how might you respond? I've asked this question several times uh, to people in our church when I'm meeting with them one-on-one -on -one, or people outside of the church who are trying to get a grip on who Jesus is and question in things like abortion, sexuality and gender, uh, climate. Like a lot of them are very social, political things. 
I can understand why, obviously. There are, these are important things that are, that are occupying much of our attention and time. But in the 12 years I've been doing ministry, it's been my experience. I would answer this question with the most controversial and difficult teachings of Jesus come down to forgiveness and grace. C.S. Lewis says it's beautiful until we have to apply it. I can only remember a couple of times when someone has visibly been so angry at a teaching I've given that they've stood up and walked out. The last time I can recall, it was on forgiveness. Understandably, as I met with this individual, they'd experienced a deep wound that was fresh, almost gushing. And I understand. I understand. Sometimes we have to take a breather with an overwhelming topic. So I want you to know up front, I acknowledge that this is a very sensitive issue for many of us in the room. And I want us to think about forgiveness not as a destination, but as a direction of discipleship. Oftentimes we get so obsessed with, I gotta forgive, I gotta forgive, I gotta gotta forgive, that it becomes ingenuine in many ways. We begin to set it aside, thinking that we've forgiven, but really, we've just stuffed it. Forgiveness is a discipleship practice that's an ongoing thing. And the direction of discipleship is very clearly oriented towards becoming a forgiven person, forgiving person. And we have some strong language here that talks about it. We're going to just look at what the parable illustrates today. There's not a lot of points. They're illustrative. And I think this will help us get a grip on forgiveness a little bit and how to approach it in a very challenging climate because we do not live in a very forgiving world right now or ever. Our cultural climate is very much, if you have done something that offends me, I do not have to do anything about that. I, I, I can just write you off, cancel you, quiet you, dismiss you, unfriend you, unfollow you, and just, dis- and just distance myself. Just ask yourself, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this unforgiving world as we walk through the parable? Because this parable illustrates for us a few things. It, it provokes and investigates and reveals a few things about us. The first thing is the parable illustrates our struggle to grasp and give forgiveness. If you're taking notes, that's on the notes. We, we struggle and often fail to grasp and give forgiveness. So we need, to, we need to understand what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness, let's begin with what it's not. It's not forgetting. It's not forgetting. There's a passage in Isaiah, 4325 to be exact, where it talks about God forgetting our sin, our transgressions. And there's a psalm, Psalm 103, that talks about God tossing our sins to the east to the west. This idea of total forgetting, that God forgets our sins. Well, really, it says remember no more, and that's different than forgetting. God is omniscient. He knows all things, therefore he forgets nothing. So for us, it's not forgetting an offense. That's impossible. That's a guilt-ridden journey, isn't it? Trying to stuff something out of your mind. But every time you see the person, every time you see a post, every time you see a reminder of the offense that was incurred upon you, you can't forget. And also the other side of not forgetting is memory builds wisdom. How to avoid things in the future. What boundaries need to be put in place? Important things come from not forgetting. So forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not excusing. Well, it's okay. No, it takes seriously the offense. Can't you just forgive? 
And what do you mean by forgiveness? It's not just letting it go. There's far more to it. It's not always reconciliation. And this is a sad part of our broken world because forgiveness with God, when we receive it, it does involve reconciliation with God. But in this broken, fallen world, forgiveness does not mean always reconciliation, unfortunately. Sometimes it's impossible. I spoke with a therapist not too long ago who told me that part of what she does is she helps people forgive those who have died. Sometimes it's impossible to reconcile. But we know what it's like to have a wound so deep that even if the person dies, you still struggle to forgive them. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes it's unwise. The person hasn't changed. And so reconciliation would mean putting you back into a safe, unsafe, potentially hostile environment. There's no visible change. Forgiveness is, is not those things. Forgiveness is often no, but forgiveness can happen without reconciliation. And so what, did, what are we talking about here? Well, if you looked up a Greek definition of the word forgiveness, it's broad and wide in the Bible, but essentially it, moves, it, rem, it means removing the guilt, not the event, the guilt. It means canceling the debt, not obliterating the debt. Something has to happen to the debt. More appropriately for this text, and I love the imagery, release. You've got someone by the throat in the parable. Forgiveness is release. And gospel-shaped, Jesus-like forgiveness is different than cultural forgiveness. There's a lot of things happening right now in our culture as it relates to forgiveness, but one of the things is forgive for your own sake. Let me just say... I am pro-forgiving for your own sake if we're voting, okay? That's a good thing. It's good, it's true, but it's incomplete. Jesus-like forgiveness not only forgives for the sake of the self, but also with a redemptive vision for the other. You're forgiving not only for yourself, but for opening up a possibility, opening up, reimagining how life could be for that person. Whether they receive it or not, that's not on you or me. But you're releasing them, not only yourself. And in the parable, it's impossible to not do one without the other. Release. Jesus-like forgiveness, especially when we look at the cross, and we'll get there, absorbs the debt. It goes somewhere. Releases grace. That's the difficulty of forgiveness, isn't it? Recognizing the cost just doesn't disappear. It, it goes somewhere. And so forgiveness is absorbing and releasing something different than what your heart really wants to do. Forgiveness also, let me just say, does not remove earthly consequences. It doesn't always remove earthly consequences. What forgiveness does is it fails to hold something over someone's head, to define them by their worst moments, and to eventually, as we grow in trying to process and become more forgiving, perhaps even empathize. This is very difficult and hard and painful and long. That's why it's a journey. 
It is a direction. It is not. The event happened, therefore I forgive. We'll talk about how to handle that here in just a second. For Jesus, this is essential to discipleship. Now, in the parable, we need to, so we need to grasp it, and we also need to recognize the fact that we struggle to give it. You see, in the parable, the first servant, we, we, we don't grasp it because we don't see often our need for it as individuals. That's just true. We struggle to see that we actually need forgiveness. And in our culture that says, basically, the individual defines what is right, defines what is, what is wise, we don't think any of our decisions really have a connection to sin. That's just how our minds work. Now, the parable is meant to provoke us to think about the unpayable debt that this, that this first servant has. Just do a little math here. Our translations can't capture it just because it's English. It's just really hard. But 10,000 bags of gold. Your translation may say talents, whatever. Um, but this first servant owes an unpayable debt and doesn't realize it. See, one talent, one talent is 6,000 denarii. Denarii is one day's worth of wage. So multiply this out. You're looking at 60 million days worth of a debt. That is 275,000 years. It's not interested in how we incurred such a debt, but that's the debt. We're meant to look at that and chuckle and go, whoa. Why? Because now his statement, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. (laughs) Exactly. Now you're feeling the parable. What? Yeah, right, pal. He struggles to even see that it is an impossible debt to pay. Be patient with me. But the king says, understanding the debt, out of pity, the the word pity there, it means a, a gut sort of sadness and compassion for the person. He says, I release you. I release you from this debt. He failed to see that. He thought, there's some way I can do this. He wasn't seeing the need for grace and forgiveness. And so in this text, sin is like an enslaving debt that cannot be escaped on our own. We are trapped by self-centeredness. We are trapped by our egos. We are trapped by misdirected desires. We are trapped. There is not enough self-help books to help the self because the self is the problem. (laughs) There is not enough steps we can take. It is an unpayable debt that the scripture is talking about here. This is what sin is. It is enslaving you. A lot of teachings on this text focus on the debt rather than the enslavement. But look at the text closely. It's more about the enslaving power of debt than it is the debt itself. Enslavement here. Paul says it like this. I want to do right, but I fail. I, I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. And the thing I do is the thing I, very, I don't want to do. I'm just caught in this cycle. Do you know what that feels like? But in some ways, sin is also like that debt because the scriptures teach that we have robbed God of goodness, beauty, and truth in the world. And we actually invest into the world things that corrupt it. Gossip, slander, 
lying. We infect the world. And so in a way, it's both enslaving and it's a debt. It's both. But we don't often see it that way. Oh, I, 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 I made a mistake. I'm sorry. What's giving power to the mistake? What's giving power to the perpetual struggles that we have? Scripture would define that as sin. And it's got to be dealt with. This is what Planting, I uh, mentioned him last week. He also says a sin is a parasite. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. Not an organism, but a leech. Sin does not build shalom, it vandalizes it. So when we lie, we are vandalizing the peace of God, disrupting harmony because we say, I don't trust you with the truth. You're creating a relational problem. When we gossip, we, it's a false gospel. It's perpet- Even if true, you are peddling bad news about a human person rather than the good news of Jesus over a person. There's a difference. And so we forget that we actually need forgiveness of this. And not only that, this enslaving sort of power, it, it makes us hold other people to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to. Just think, you were in traffic. Everyone loves this example. You were in traffic. Kind person is riding your tail. Jolts around you, zooms past you. What's the first thing you think about? I hope they get pulled over. Right? Now, have you ever done that? Have you ever zoomed past somebody who you thought was moving too slow? And then when you pass them, you're like, what are you even doing on the road? Do you, have, do you even have a driver's license? Are you nuts? You just drive, right? You don't hold them to the same standard you hold yourself. You expect them to cater to your rules, but not you by theirs. The same is true. Let's just run with the traffic thing. When somebody cuts you off, what do you do? You don't go, they're probably having a bad day. I'm just going to let them go. I'm going to release them. No, no, no. You speed up, and then you get beside them, and you give them the... Look, and maybe some sign language, if we're being honest. But you, you get right up beside them and you let them know, I see you. And this is what we do in small ways and in big ways. We don't hold ourselves to the same standard as we hold other ones. And that is sin. Now, let's walk, let's walk with the lying motif. We've all lied. We've all lied. Some big, some small. And then when we lie, we try to find ways to justify with ourselves. Look, they just wouldn't understand. It wouldn't, it wouldn't help. It, you know, whatever. But when you find out that someone lied to you, it's different, isn't it? It's because we don't hold people to the same standards that we hold ourselves. This is what sin does. And this is what the text is. This man has been forgiven 270,000 lifetimes of debt, yet he goes after a man who... The amount he owes is only, if you calculate the same way, is only a few months' worth of payment. A few months. That's what sin is. That's what the need for forgiveness means. Do we see that within ourselves? If we fail to see that we need forgiveness, we will never become forgiving people. Because we'll always play the comparison game. At least I'm better than that person or the person that offended me. And we feel like to forgive is to lose. 
that somehow we give power to someone when we forgive. We'll talk about that. But that moves us to the next thing. The parable illustrates the next, torturous consequences of unforgiveness. The torturous consequences of unforgiveness. The servant goes to collect this minor debt, which he doesn't get, so he then chokes and then imprisons. That's what forgiveness does. You hold on, and in your mind you imprison them with no room for escape because precisely we think that to let them go is to lose. But really, rather than being in control, we are actually being controlled by the power of sin that gives rise to unforgiveness. It's enslaving. And it makes you think you have control. Pay attention to the wicked servant's disposition, angry, agitated, hard-hearted, narrow, petty, hurtful. Unforgiveness does this to us. This is what it makes us. It makes us hard-hearted and hurtful. It makes us angry and agitated. We are really in control. We really feel like we're in control, but we're not. Unforgiveness, according to the last part of this text, is withering our soul here and now and in the time to come. It's squashing the life out of us. Now, this is not saying if you struggle to forgive, you're going to be eternally lost. It's saying quite the opposite. If there's no struggle at all, then you're in danger. The pattern of Scripture makes room for your discipleship. The Spirit is not in a rush with your spiritual formation. The question is, is am I moving? Being stagnant and indifferent towards unforgiveness is the danger. This is actually saying, people think, oh, well, if, I struggle, if I'm struggling to forgive, then I'm lost. No, no, no. If you're struggling to forgive, that's a good thing. You are involved in the wrestling of it. Keep leaning into the Spirit's guidance. The challenge is when you don't care anything at all about it. Unforgiveness robs our joy. It, dis it disrupts community. Listen to this. The servants saw... And it says they were outraged. The word is actually deeply saddened. This man's unforgiveness disrupted the community. And the context is dealing with sin in community. It's torturous here and now and in the time to come. That's the point. It's not that God is up there torturing. Remember, think about parable. Think about the parable. And so if, let me just give you an example. I used to watch uh, Roadrunner and Coyote. Anybody else? Roadrunner and Coyote? Yep. Morning Looney Tunes. No Netflix. Was, you, know, you know what I'm saying. And so, but I remember, I, for some reason, I was prepping the sermon. There was one scene that came to my mind. It reminded me of something my mom said. I remember watching my mom saying, Cody, you need to go clean your room. Hold on, mom. This is the most important part. <laughs> this is where Coyote gets it, okay? Like, hold on. And so, but she stopped to watch it for a second with me. And she goes, you're going to clean your room right after this. Just watch, let me watch my show. Okay, I know this is when I was like 30, so it's not a big deal. But I'm just kidding, just kidding. Um, she says, let me watch the show. Well, Coyote gets fired out of a cannon and smashes on the ground, just like he always does, right? The little hole, right? 
And I said, and I just started laughing. And my mom said, that's what I'm going to do to you if you don't go clean your room. Now, was my mom being literal? Was she going to go down to the local military station, go purchase a cannon, and load me into it? He didn't clean his room. I don't know what to tell you, officers. No. No. Do you see how we're to take this imagery? The consequences of unforgiveness are detrimental in this life and in the life to come. Meaning, hell, forget all of the debates about the literal fire, the literal darkness, forget the physicalities of, of hell. What is very clear is that whatever it is, it is a conscious awareness that God's reign no longer falls on the just and the unjust. God's goodness and grace and life and joy are gone, and there's an awareness of it. As C.S. Lewis says, it's unending self-absorption. Having a thirst you can't quench, having a hunger that goes unsatisfied, and knowing it. Unforgiveness leads us in that, in that place. Now, the last thing, the parable illustrates God's offer of immeasurable forgiveness. The passage opens and closes with language that makes this a gospel issue. If we don't interpret this as a gospel issue, we won't take it seriously in our lives. When I say gospel issue, I mean fundamental to following Jesus. Fundamental. Peter asks a question, trying to come off as virtuous. How many times must I forgive? Seven, seven, seven times? The reason why I said seven times is because the Jewish tradition at the time said three. Forgive three times and then no more. Peter's saying, look, I've learned a lot from Jesus. You have to go the extra mile a little bit. So I'm going to double it. Hey, disciples, watch this. Jesus, seven times. Peter, sit down. No, not seven times. The reason why is because you're still limiting what God can do. The, seven, the 70 times, the reason why I think 77 times is the best phrase is because it, it recalls someone, an evil person from Genesis. In Genesis 4, a descendant of Cain, his name is Lamech. Listen to what he says. He says to his wives... Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. What is he doing? You see, Lamech prides himself on winning by destroying you take an eye from me, I'm going to take everything from you. The eye for an eye in the Old Testament, that's to limit. That is, the, that is the absolute limit. But what our human tendency is to do is to go more than the limit. If someone makes a your mama joke, you don't just stop there. You go far beyond the next joke that, that totally destroys them. That's what we do. We take more than an eye. And this is what Lamech is doing. Lamech is saying, he cut me, I killed him. Just know that about me. That's how strong and tough I am. I will win by destroying. Now, Jesus is reversing that. He's saying, take that same passion and redeem it. Be the sort of person that won't 
get revenge 77 times, but will forgive 77 times. He is reversing what sin has done. Jesus is saying that God reverses this within us. Rather than being vengeful, we become forgiving. Peter was trying to be virtuous, but he was still drawing a line. And Jesus says, my Father in heaven will do the same to you if you don't forgive within your hearts. This is a heart issue, not a habit issue. This is not, this is not something you do. You don't forgive in order to get into God's kingdom. You get into God's kingdom and therefore become forgiving. That's what it's saying. Or it will wither your soul in every way possible. Now, this is a gospel issue because on the cross, this is what Jesus has done. He has absorbed the human debt that could never be paid, released those who accept it, and releases us and gives us grace upon grace upon grace. Aren't you thankful God doesn't just only forgive you seven times? Aren't you thankful that God just doesn't forgive you 77 times? At this point, many say, but you don't understand. Here's the truth. I don't. There are wounds in this room that I do not understand. I've got wounds that you don't understand. Guess who does? God. Only Christianity offers a God who, who suffered to the point where he can say, he can truly say, I get it. No, 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 I get it. When we look at the cross, we're not just seeing an event. We're seeing the divine empathy of God poured out for all to experience his grace. In Jesus, you actually get to hear, yeah, I actually know what it's like to be betrayed by those you love, to be mocked and misunderstood, to be beaten by those who are supposed to protect. I get it. He may not, I do. And so the point is to turn your frustrations, your emotions, don't get rid of them, but take them to Jesus. God's forgiveness is available to all to receive it. What limits God's forgiveness is our failure to receive it and allow it to take root in our lives. So how do we become forgiving? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. I'll tell you a quick story, and then we'll take communion. In 2018, a police officer, Amber Geiger, you may recall the story very well. She was coming off of a 13 and a half hour police shift, goes into her apartment complex, opens the door to someone in, in her, in her, in what she thought was her apartment, who was actually in the apartment, was Gene Botham, a 27-year-old black male who was eating ice cream. The way the story goes is Amber thought she was in her apartment, which was directly below, so it makes sense. Directly below, I've walked, we know that's like you kind of walk, open up somebody's car, it looks just like yours. She's saying that's kind of what happened. I walked in, I thought there was somebody in my house, I pulled my gun, and I shot. Sounds like there was, there's a lot, there's a lot there, but that's what happened. She killed Jean in the apartment that wasn't her own, and a trial ensued. And this is a lot of conflict about racial inequality and injustice surfacing around this time. It's a very complex case when you actually look at the case itself. It's full of, full of difficulty and hurt. Well, Brant Botham, his older brother, takes the stand. And this is what he says. If you were truly sorry, 
I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I presently want the best for you. And I wasn't going to say this in front of my family or anyone. But I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's, that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. And he turns to the judge and he says, I, I don't know if this is possible, but can I please give her a hug? Please. This story blew up the media. It caused a lot of confusion, pain. Many in his family were like, for what? Forget, are you serious? A news commentator said, why is it that the black community is always having to do this, always having to ask for forgiveness, and then we just, like it's a reaction. This is what this news analyst said. This man knew that. And if you go back and you hear the story of how he arrived at forgiveness, it was a long journey. He said in one statement, I wanted her dead. I wanted her dead, not only in prison, I wanted her dead. And then as he worked through it, he said, but then I began to want for people what God's heart is for people. He understood that this decision to forgive was going to set him at odds with people in his family, people in the community, and even cause tension within himself because forgiveness is ugly and painful. It is ugly and it is painful. But it's the sort of pain, there's two types of pain. There's ouch. I've cut my arm and I'm bleeding. And then there's the pain of healing when the alcohol is poured on the wound. Sometimes that hurts way worse, but that's actually what's healing it. That's forgiveness. It can be like that. He knew that. And he said, the heart of the God matters more than anything else. And that's what I want for you. I don't say that to compare your trauma to his. That's wrong. I say that to show you the possibilities that open up. When we become forgiving people, and Jesus says the best place to start is in prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, He makes forgiveness the centerpiece or a pivotal climax of the prayer. Forgive us. If we're sitting in prayer daily, aware of our own need for sin, it makes us more empathetic. The research on that's clear too, but Jesus was there way before the research was out. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. I'll put out an article from a from a reliable Christian psychologist on the path of forgiveness. His name is Everett Worthington. I'll put that article out there for our church this week so you can see it and begin to process it in a different way. But for now, just know that the starting point, the best place, if you're looking to take one step, pray. Pray. Because we have to decide, has God's forgiveness actually changed us? What evidence is there that I'm becoming more of a forgiving person? Is there evidence? And what does it mean if there's not? Pray. In fact, as we get ready to take communion, this is the climax of the sermon. Jesus says, the elements around your table, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness 
of sins. Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing and sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us. Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast.